This morning, what we're going to be doing is uh, kind of like everything that we, we or on a regular basis that we do around here. We're about to open up God's Word, and it will instruct us, um, and then I'm going to do my best to try to explain what that Word looks like, what it means, and then how to apply it to our lives. And then we're going to respond with worship. I, I heard some people say even recently to me, um, you know, that's a different order than I'm used to, and really, we're not trying to be creative, but I would like for you to know like our reasoning is that we believe that God's Word is uh, foundational and uh, at the very core of everything that we believe and then therefore all of our actions. Uh, And so we really see it to just set the stage, to set the agenda for this morning. And then everything that we do then comes around that, so we understand what that Word says. And then our singing actually is a response to that. And so that's really the, the, the thought process that we have. How can we hear from God How can we have a better understanding of what God has said to us? And then how can we respond faithfully in song? And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We will begin by a reading of God's word from John chapter 2. You can either turn in your, uh, on your phone, right? You can look at it on version, or you could uh, look at the pew in front of you. There is a Bible there. would love for you to take that one. If you don't have a copy of the CSB, um, then you would be more than, uh, we'd be more than glad to give you that particular copy. We can replace it. Um, but we are going to be in John chapter 2. We're going to be reading the first 11 verses On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people are drunk, the inferior But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we're looking at this amazing story of the miracle at Cana. Um, And uh, for those of you that are just thinking, wow, what are the chances that we're doing the marriage uh, commissioning, and we're preaching from John 2. Yeah, we planned that. I'm just going to tell you straight up. It's not, it's not, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't even hard, actually. Uh, we knew what we were going to be doing this, this spring. We knew what we were going to be studying through. And we said, hey, can we just have it on this date? And Elizabeth said, sounds great. And so that's what we did. And here's one of the reasons why. Um, marriage in our culture today is, uh, is a big deal. Redefining it standing firm regarding it, and, and what we do as a church matters, how we respond to cultural changes and adapt, to adaptations, how we speak about it. And one of the things that we could do, I guess, is that we could write a bunch of proposition papers, right? Justin, I'm sure you'd like to write all of them. And here is what the Bible teaches and what we obviously believe about God's design for marriage between a man and a woman. And we could write that paper. 
and, and we would believe that. Here's what we believe about divorce, and here's what we believe about adultery, or here's what we believe about remarriage. And we could literally walk through and present a number of different papers I could take to the Twitter sphere, and we could write long different articles and descriptions about what we believe, and we could post it on social media, and this is who we are, and we, we could even, if we wanted to, we could have protests. I'm Canadian. I know how to do them well. And so, yeah, did you hear there's a protest in Canada? It's like, I, 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 I didn't know, but now I found out. Anyway, so there's lots of different things that we could do. But actually, I believe, and I don't think I'm the only one, that what we did this morning is the, not the only Christian response, but I, I do think it's like the core Christian response. Like, I really don't believe, I'm not trying to speak on behalf of all of the elders, on behalf of Sunnybrook Christian Church, um, but it's a deep conviction that I have that I, I just, I don't know if like laws, and I know how they affect culture, really is, are what Christians fight or battle. I think we can have influence. I, th I think we should definitely speak what the Bible teaches. But if you want to know what we can do, and my wife sat right there first service, and she's not there now, but if you want to know what, what, what I, I can do about marriage, is, is not just uh, make a stand or write a paper, but just treat Andrea like a daughter of God. That's what I need to do. And, and I need my, my, my children, my boys, to, to watch what a healthy marriage looks like. That's what I need to do. Sure, there are other things, but that matters the most. And, and, and then I have other responsibilities. And as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, as an elder at Sunnybrook Christian Church, I, I really do believe that although there might other conversations that I might have or other influences societally that I might be able to, to exert, that more than anything, I just I really believe this to the core of my being. The best thing that we can do is just train up couples in what the Bible teaches about marriage and have those couples meet with other couples so that they can have like relationships and conversations. Like, I, I know that doesn't like fix everything. Technically, I know no one other than Jesus who can. But like what we did here this morning matters. And, and that's, that's how we believe things change is that under the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit and under the guidance and the direction of the Word of God, we are informed and then we engage. So that's what we believe about marriage. Now, if you want to know the particulars, I mean, we could talk about those, but really John chapter 2 really isn't about marriage. I think one of the most amazing things about John chapter 2 is that it really reminds us rather clearly, as you're going to see here in a moment, that marriage is the context for a more important message to be told. That marriage is, 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 is something and it's wonderful and valuable. I mean, right, you know this, marriage is a big deal. It's a really big deal. It helps mold and shape culture. What could be more important than marriage? And then Jesus says, hold my wine, right? Jesus enters into the equation and all of a sudden, everything else begins to take context. And that's what we see in John chapter 2. It's, it's not just about a wedding. It's, it's really not. Um, I, I would do disservice to this text if I just preached about marriage. What is the bride's name again? What is the groom's name? Are you ready for this one? What is Jesus' 
mother's name. No, 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 no. Don't, don't go to Luke. Stay out of Luke. What's her name? Yeah. Jesus. He's the one. Standing front, standing center. Um, that, that's why, like, what we, what we do here and how we, how we do it matters. And the first thing that each of these couples need to know, or you need to know, is that Jesus is the one that then gives meaning and purpose. Jesus is the one that gives perspective and priority to everything else. And if you don't have that, then you've got nothing. You have nothing if you don't have Jesus standing at the center. You don't want problems on your wedding day. You just don't. We actually see here in verse 3 that there's a problem. Um, I, you, you worry about it. I mean, I remember worrying what's going to be the problem. And Andrea and I had a little bit of a problem with her dress. Uh, the, she had this, this, this dress made for her. And when we went to pick it up, the lady said it was going to be a way much more than we ever thought. And my wife freaked out. And I was just so excited about getting married. Nothing was getting in my way. And so I just thought, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to marry this woman. There's a, friends of ours, Justin and Debbie Ebert, they asked me if I would mind performing their wedding, and so I did. And uh, I don't remember exactly all the events in terms of how they worked, but I think everybody you're related to got sick somewhere in the days leading up to, and then even the day of. As I remember it, Justin, you got sick that day, right? If maybe the night before or that day. And I remember hearing the news, did you hear Justin is sick? And I'm thinking, oh, okay, but I know Justin. He's going to figure out a way to get married. He really wants to marry Debbie and really wants to marry Debbie. And since he really wants to marry Debbie, he's going to figure it out. You even went to the hospital and they gave you IV to try to give you the strength necessary. But in the end, like, I don't know. Is he going to be able to do it? Is he going to be able to stand there? We'll get a chair. Like, they'll do anything they can to get married. And then I remember thinking to myself, I got to go talk to Deborah. I better go talk to Debbie and find out, like, how she's doing. And, hey, Debbie, I mean, I'm just here to, you doing okay? And I was a little nervous, actually. I was, I, was, I was nervous because have you heard about brides and what it can be like on their wedding day? Have you heard about this? And it, it is. It's kind of unnerving, actually, because it's like I, I really thought she had it together. I really thought. And here's the concern. There are people, right, who are more interested in the wedding than the marriage. They really want the wedding. Who, who, am, I getting, who am I marrying again? <laughs> More time was spent on the dress. You know what I mean? And I didn't think that was Debbie. I didn't think that was her, but I'm nervous. And I go in and, and we begin to talk. And, 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 and Debbie was just as godly as she is today. And, and Debbie just kept, you know, it'll be fine. And it's not like she didn't care. It's not like it didn't matter. But in the end, and I remember her, I don't know if I, these words were the exact words she said, but no, what I desire more than anything else is to marry Justin and to glorify God by our mutual nuptials. You kept calling them nuptials. And so there was this, Debbie's just this very mature, very together person, and she really didn't care about any kind of incidental. She just wanted to be with Justin to live the rest of her life. And I just remember thinking, wow, Justin really is blessed. Because the, the problem or the inconvenience of the marriage, or sorry, of the wedding, was not going to affect the marriage. Mary shows up. Look at verse three. When the wine ran out, I don't know, did you have wine at your wedding? Wine at your wedding? I mean, some people don't have wine. I'm, I'm from Canada, so everyone has wine at their wedding, okay? So wine at your wedding, and, and this would have been a really, really big deal in, in Jewish times. Weddings lasted about seven days, and the wine was freely flowing 
for all of those seven days. To run out of wine was a social faux pas. Like, you just don't do that. And one of the reasons why is that for us, we think of like marriage as between a bride and a groom, a man and a woman. But no, back in ancient times, it was between families, this family and this family. Today, we want to invite everybody that we are close to, right? Some people invite more, some people invite less, but it's some kind of a connection or proximity. That's why we say, wow, look at this. Jesus and his, and his mother and his disciples are there. They must have all known him. Well, maybe, but it just wasn't uncommon, A, to invite a, a rabbi of the, from the area and any students that he might have could show up. Not only would you invite friends and family, but in terms of your social circle, even in the community, you would even invite your enemies. Like you would invite people that were opposed to you. So it wasn't just, imagine, it's lasting seven days. So it wasn't just your friends who are there to support you. No, there's a lot more social issues that are actually going on. So can you imagine the wait when this room is full, friends and enemies alike, family is there, Everyone is kind of waiting to see whether or not these families are going to, how this is going to work. And, and now all of a sudden Mary says, we're running out of wine, which is just something that you don't do. And, G, and Mary does what Mary seems to think the best answer is, is that she goes to Jesus and she tells him, I need your help. I really want to spend my time focusing on what Jesus says to her, because as you could tell when I read it the first time, it's complicated. Look at verse 4. Jesus is going to say two things to his mom in one verse, and I really think the entire text kind of fits around these two verses. Really, the first thing he actually says, and I'm wondering, what does Jesus mean by the statement, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? <laughs> woman? <laughs> right? I mean, literally, as I'm reading it, I'm going, oh, I hope, you know, hope you understand where I'm coming from on this. It's one of those things where you want to go, I didn't write it. I didn't write it. Just saying, I didn't write it, right? What does that mean? Now, now first of all, in, in our, you just need to realize, like, their culture is different than ours. And before you just go, wow, and we're so much better than them. I don't know if that's the case always. But the word, even in, in its sense, probably is much closer to ma'am than it is to woman. The, the Greek word gene literally could just be used to just describe a woman. And so Jesus has this statement, and I, I think it's, a, it's really a statement. I don't think John's making some kind of editorial change. He actually says this, and it could be understood as, 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 as ma'am. You've called your mom ma'am? I've called my mom ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Now, the part that is a little bit strange is that when you go back and you read all that we have in ancient Greek literature, there has not, there's not one reference, not one reference of a son referring to his mother as woman. Even in all of Jewish, Greek written Jewish history, there are no references at all of anyone ever referring to their mother as woman, which means something's going on here. So how do we know exactly what's, what's going on? And, and, and the statement is, is, is somewhat strange. So first of all, let's understand what he's saying. I, I think he's being kind. I think he is being gracious when he refers to his mother as woman, but he obviously isn't referring to his mother as mother. It, it, what we see in the Gospels when we look at all of them together is, is this, is Jesus is actively engaged in disengaging from his family. Really? You're going to say this on like marriage appreciation day? Yeah? I mean, it's the text. 
I don't really have a choice. Jesus, and by the way, it's, it's, he's not, the, um, he's not the, the freshman college student that's just like, nah, I got busier things to do, mom. Sorry, I haven't called you. That's not Jesus. So he's not casually dismissing her. He's not the Jesus that's going, mom, listen, you really did a job on my head, and I need some space. No, that's not, I mean, I don't know exactly how great of a a mother Mary was, but I do know that Jesus was the perfect son, right? So he's not creating distance because she's somehow a problem. There's just no way that we can't believe that he loves her and that he is kind to her and that everything he ever says to anybody, to his mother, is right and perfect and good. So maybe it's actually in that first part. What has this concern of yours to do with me? Literally, it says, what to you and to me? What to you and to me? Well, what does that even mean? What to you and to me? When you understand that construction, that actually is a pretty popular idiom or a popular phrase. What he is saying is, is what are the things that you're about Right? Are you about stuff? Do you have like passions and interests? Do you have like a, a, a kind of a life that you're really kind of spending your time working on, your money and your energy? The statement, what do the things of you have in common with the things of me? And he's really asking a question. All the things that you care about and all the things that you are about, what does that have to do with me, Jesus is saying? I think that's why there really is. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine, but... Jesus loves his family, Jesus loves his mother, and he is creating some distance appropriately, especially in a time and an age where the sons, maybe even the oldest son, just followed the family tradition. Um, And the Bible actually warns about this, that family just takes care of family, you know what I mean? That's who we are, we're Johnsons and we got each other's back. Is that the kind of Jesus that you have? Does whatever his mama says? does whatever the family wants? Is that the kind of Jesus? And Jesus says to her, what to you and to me? What of all the things that you care about, all your interests, all your hobbies, um, all this concern that you have now, what does that have to do with me and my life? He's not trying to completely disengage, but he is trying to just make sure there are clear, and to using popular modern day terms, boundaries. There needs to be boundaries, mom. This phrase that's actually used, and this is the part that's really kind of weird, this phrase is actually used in in conversations that Jesus has with demons. Jesus doesn't say it to them, the demons actually say it to him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke use this phrase, but not between Jesus and his mother, but between the demons and Jesus. When the demons see Jesus, they say, what to you and to me? They recognize him, they recognize who he is, and they can just tell there is something that is so profoundly different than you. All of your interests, all of your passions, are, all of your, your agenda, that's a key term, your agenda is different than mine, the demons say. And Jesus is trying to make it clear. And, and maybe weddings are a good time to make it clear. What is your agenda going to be? What are you going to be about I mean, I think it's important to be about marriage. I think it's important to be about family. I think it's important to be about those kinds of things. Don't you? Where does Jesus fit into that? Where does Jesus fit into that? Well, when we have problems, we'll let him know. 
He kind of fits into it. Now, again, I've got my own agenda. I think Jesus, one of the reasons why we, we all kind of bristle at this verse is because it confronts all of us, doesn't it? And, and maybe he's not trying to put you in his place when he says it. Maybe he's asking you a genuine question. What to me and to you? Does my life have anything to do with your life? Does my agenda have anything to do with your agenda? Do the things that matter to me, do they even matter to you? The things that I absolutely care about and how I'm going to spend the rest of my life on the way to a cross, by the way. Mary, did you know? No. She had no idea. Jesus asks you, what, what to you and to me? Do we have anything in common? No, Jesus, that's why I'm trying to get you in my back pocket. That's why, that's why I have, like, I, I keep religious things and spiritual things right where I need them to kind of advance my agenda, right? And, and it, it really is a, a broken way of looking at things, and I, I promise you, Mary, as wonderful as she is, is probably in danger of doing something very, very similar, and Jesus is drawing some very clear lines. By the time we're done John's gospel, we'll see a number of instances in where Jesus is drawing rather hard lines between his family and him. What to you and to me? What to you and to me? Now, here's the problem. The problem is that next line from verse 4. What does it say? Why, why is he even bringing this up? Because Mary doesn't understand that his time, literally his hour, has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. That's going to appear a number of times in John's gospel until in finally chapter 12 he says, my hour is now here, meaning I am about to die. See, what Mary has no idea about is that what she is asking is actually the beginning of a series of events that are going to lead to the cross. This is so human, isn't it? Not bad, human. We think we got a problem and we think Jesus can solve it and so we go to him and we're freaking out. It's probably pretty good that Jesus looks at us and says, what to you and to me? And then he points out, with my hours not yet come, how does this fit into ultimately everything that I'm doing? And by the way, don't just casually go, well, it doesn't, fine, I'll quit asking. Do you know Christians who do that? I was going to ask God about this, but I don't think he really cares about it because it's not the most important thing in the world, right? And I know Christians who talk like that. I'm glad his mother did not. I love what D.A. Carson said. He's a New Testament scholar. I love what he says. He's dealing with this difficulty of the Mary statement and the idea that she did not understand that what she was asking and what Jesus was about to do was going to set in motion his own death. Because I can imagine what she would have said if Jesus had explained all that to her. Well, you do know, Mom, that if I turn this water into wine, it's going to bring about my impending death. What would she say? Every mom would say, well, then don't do it. Sorry for asking. I didn't mean to bother you. No, but that's not the point either, Mom. I just want you to understand, like, this is Jesus speaking to every one of us. Like, things are happening, and you're asking for my involvement. And you don't understand exactly how all this fits together, do you? You think you understand how all this fits together? You think you understand how all your prayers fit together into God's plan? No, I've just been spending the last two years, don't let me get COVID, don't let anyone else get COVID. Thank you for not killing me when I had COVID. Please help. I mean, that's literally like we're just we're stuck in the moment. Human, not bad, human. 
Jesus is saying, listen, there's something bigger here. There's a timetable. My hour has not yet come. And then as I act and as I react to things that are happening, it is going to deal with, people are going to see in me some things and some people are going to believe, verse 11, but a lot of people are going to reject. Look at John 5, 15 and 16. Jesus is going to heal a man by a pool and then the man is going to go. Look at verse 15. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Chapter 6, Jesus turns um, a number of, of just a few bread and fish into many bread and fish. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. And therefore, when they realize... That, sorry, therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Yeah, you don't get it. Coming and making him king by force. Isn't that an interesting verse? And Jesus is like, that's not what this is about. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Here are the people's response. Mary had no idea what she was asking. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin. And we're saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing so many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come, and they will take away both our place and our nation. Verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to kill Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. All of this finds its beginning. Literally, it doesn't say this is the first sign. It uses the same word in, the, in, the, in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. In the beginning of the signs. That's really what he says here. In the beginning of the signs, this is going to start the clock, so to speak. But by the way, Jesus isn't not wanting to start the clock. Jesus just wants Mary to know, you're not the one setting the clock for me. You're not the one setting the clock for me. I have a father who is setting that clock for me. And I'm going to be faithful to him. Boy, there's something we all need to hear, isn't it? Wedding day or not. Married or not. Closely connected to our family or not. Jesus makes it very clear. I am here to do my father's will. So then the last thing is, what's, what's so important about, not, not necessarily the wedding, but particularly the wine, it is very interesting that what you see in the miracle is they have these, these large st and stone um, clay pots can become unclean, and therefore the water in them is also unclean, and you have to start the whole process over again. But stone does not hold the impurities, and these are ritualistic things, okay? Don't think germs, think clean or unclean in biblical terms. They're used for washing of hands and for dipping of pots, so that you can stay clean, spiritual, holy. And you have six of them, 180-ish gallons? Is it not say something to you that Jesus is like, yeah, I got a new use for them? This is not how you become ritually clean. This is not how you become spiritually clean. Um, uh, th th those pots, and, and they, they had their day, that day is now done. I'm gonna take those pots, which are used for purification, and since I am here, the true groom. I have something for us to do with them. It's time to celebrate. I want to show you a couple of very interesting passages, one from Isaiah and the other from Jeremiah. You probably don't have time to just turn to them, so follow these words on the screen. Isaiah chapter 25, starting in verse 6. On this mountain, says the Lord of armies, will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, 
a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will swallow, listen to where this text goes, on this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. The the idea of wine coming and the idea of good wine flowing is a sign that God has come, that God has arrived, that death is defeated. And Jesus says, I'm here. Isaiah chapter, sorry, Jeremiah chapter 31. Again, talking about this new covenant He says in verse 12, and they will come and they will shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will be radiant with joy because of the Lord's goodness, because of the grain, the new wine, the fresh oil, and because of the young and the flocks and the herds. Their life will be like an irrigated garden and they will no longer grow weak from hunger. The the promise of God, the presence of Jesus Christ, fundamentally changes everything. And Jesus Christ wants them to know it is a new day. I'm I'm here to follow and I'm here to fulfill all that God has for me. And just in typical fashion and be prepared for this all the way through the gospel of John is that what you are constantly having are people who are asking Jesus questions, people who are trying to find from Jesus certain things and Jesus looking at them and so graciously and lovingly offering them so much more. I want to talk about new birth, Nicodemus says, and Jesus talks about it on a whole new level. I came to this well so that I could find like something to drink, and Jesus says, I have water for you, and a crowd wants like loaves and fish, and Jesus is like, I have bread, I, I have things that will satisfy you at a whole new level. Do you understand just how good Jesus Christ is and how we can see and celebrate in him so much more than we could ever ask or imagine? This is who Jesus Christ is, and this is what Jesus Christ does. And so I don't think we should be surprised that John is going to spend a lot of time near the end of his gospel around another meal, where Jesus is going to be dealing with wine. And he's going to take that wine, he's going to take what it symbolizes and what it represents, and it's going to mean so much more, so much more. Jesus takes the purification stone jars and the water that's in them, and they are transformed into a new wine, symbolizing what God actually does. And in the same way, we actually see Jesus taking the Passover on the night that he was betrayed and saying, you really don't understand. You've you've eaten this, I don't know how many times before, but what I am doing here tonight, Jesus says to his disciples, is foundationally and radically different. And if you think about it, All of that was set in motion the beginning of the signs when Jesus turned water to wine. You used to to purify yourself like this, but now I have a new way to purify you. You ask of me of things, and I just want you to know, and this is the good news of Jesus, Jesus spoke so kindly and yet truthfully to his mother because he knew that more than she needed somebody to just help that family with shame was someone to die on the cross for their sin and Mary needed it as much as anybody 
I'm here to do my father's work. I'm here to be faithful to my father's plan. And that is why Jesus took the bread on the night that he was betrayed and he broke it and he gave a piece to his disciples and he said, take it and eat. That which you taste is the plan of God through Jesus Christ. He takes the cup, the new wine of the covenant, his blood shed for us. Take and drink. Take and drink. 